You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Uh, I've been uh, talking recently uh, about the lessons we could teach our kids, and really by just having different discussions and maybe better discussions about life. We always talk on the show about resiliency and, and creating a, a more resilient family. Part of resiliency is helping our kids understand that life is hard and you can get through it. And and really, when it comes down to it, too, that you're already uh, able to handle a lot more than you think you are. And I think one of the things that really could help us convey this message to our children and our family are the stories we tell. So some of the stories I think we should make sure we're telling are the Who Am I story, which is where you share with your kids very clearly how you came to know who you are in this world. If you're a spiritual person, that could be where your story about your conversion, uh, about why you believe in a higher purpose and how that higher purpose helps you understand how you're supposed to respond today in your daily life. The lesson could also uh, get into the Who Am I story could be about what, what you were called to accomplish on this earth, how you came to understand your specific role Um, And it might even be as a father, as a mother, as a friend, as a doctor, whatever your profession is, how you came to understand that role. Um, But the kids need to know that you didn't start this world just knowing you were going to do something. You had to figure it out. And it starts to set up this idea that there is power in looking for your calling in life. Also, you could have a great discussion about that. Talk to them about their passions. Talk to them about what they feel in their heart. Uh, deeply that is uniquely theirs to bring to the world, um, and then share how you specifically discerned what you were supposed to do. Another conversation you can have is that life, uh, the life lessons you learn from loss, right? We've all lost somebody dear to us, or we've lost a car that we loved so much and we had put so much time and energy into, or we lost, um, you know, a position or a toy or a something. We've all had loss in our lives. And the conversation that we can have with our kids about loss is so in, is so valuable because it's not going away. We are all going to have loss in life. So let's normalize loss by simply saying, you know what, this is how I dealt with my loss. And you might be able to tell a story where a business partner hurt you or, uh, you know, a spouse did something um, and you ended up ending the marriage or but talk about how loss hurt and um, how you made it through the hurt. Another story that you can tell is how to handle life stresses. You might talk to your kids in this one where you talk about how you've learned to handle your emotions, where a lot of times you want to blow up and freak out and get mad and punch somebody, but how you chose not to, or where you feel anxiety and stress and how you've learned to manage your anxiety and stress. Again, this teaches that we we can learn that stress is normal, wanting to punch somebody and get angry is normal, but you can then start to teach your kids specific situations where you learn to manage the anxiety and manage the stress. You can have a discussion about where they struggle with it and help them figure out how to turn off the fight or flight, right? How they can manage the emotion. Another great, I think, lesson and story we could talk to our kids about is the I can do hard things story. That's the story where you in your head honestly doubted maybe at first that you could accomplish something. 
You just couldn't see how it could be done. And it was overwhelming where you felt like there is no way I can do this. And then tell the story about how you overcame the hard thing and how you piece by piece slowly went through the journey of doing the hard thing. Talk about how it feels to overcome such hard things. Again, notice how this conversation, all of these conversations, are setting up the idea that life has some hard edges, but each and every one of them we can get through. We can get through loss. We can get through doing the hard thing. We can uh, learn what our values and our principles are. We can, we can handle and figure out who we are even in a world that seems so dark. When you guide your kid, your child, through these discussions, um, don't just do it when the moment appears— Uh, Sometimes it might be great to start teaching some of these lessons along the way, uh, not just when all of a sudden they need those lessons. Does that make sense? They might – it might be better that you've already told similar stories three or four times. Then when they run into the problem, they'll actually remember the stories you've been telling. But this is what makes resilient kids are resilient conversations about where mom and dad had to be resilient right? We, we always talk about we want our kids to be more resilient, but the reality is resilient kids are, are groomed and taught by resilient parents and resilient families. So let's make our family conversations part of this process and uh, know that the stories and the sharing of the stories are really what create the more positive resilient symbols. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. I had a chance to go to uh, my wife's book group, and in her, I mean, it's not something I, I do often, but uh, I happened to be with her and she invited me and I went and heard a friend of mine, uh, a friend I grew up with, uh, name is Dr. David Colliker. He uh, is a, um, was a endodontist and um, practices an endodontist. And he's, he wrote a book titled, Everybody Needs a Brain Tumor. And he's my age, uh, 49 years old, and has a brain tumor and has had it for about, I think, uh, seven plus nine years, I think. And, uh, you know, he talked about – he talks about in the book the impact of a brain tumor. But really everybody needs it because in the end it takes you back to what really is most important. And some of the the interesting things – we're going to have him on the show sometime in the future, but – um, it really is interesting, the discussion we had about when one of us is sick uh, and others start noticing it, kind of a lot of the lessons that have that, that come about because of that. He talked about how they, um, as a family, they, they didn't want everybody involved. It wasn't a, a everybody decision. It was their families processing uh, this this situation. And he 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 you know was very private about it. He was a practicing endodontist. You don't want your endodontist to have a brain tumor, and so if everybody knew about the brain tumor, um, even though it wasn't impairing him physically uh, at that time, he didn't want everyone to know about it. And does do we have the right to that privacy? Think about all these stars that and famous people that the minute they start acting a little strange, people start throwing out their their health issues. Think about what we've what's happened with President um, uh, Trump and his health and everybody questioning his mental health or Hillary Clinton and her physical health. Now, I get it if they're, if they're going to be the president. But what about just your dentist? There were stories told about the fact that. You know, people would try to figure stuff out by asking the kids of this person. 
So how's what's going on with your dad? I, I, I noticed that this is going on. What's going on? So they're like shaking down the kids to get the information. Or they they also talked about just the impact it had on the family and how and how you have to go through the process of deciding what to tell what kids at what age and how the kids can process certain things. Um, it was just an amazing experience to watch somebody that was is basically me um, going through such a very difficult process and then to watch how his wife, uh, who was we've grown up with, we all went to high school together, we were all really good friends, to watch how she's taken care of him and uh, and how you just deal with it, um, how at first you think you don't know how you can overcome it, but you're overcoming it and you're handling it and everyone can in the end handle it. He also brought up uh, some pretty interesting points about the power of friends, um, how a lot of friends would come over and, you know, the friends would come over and say, hey, can, what can I do to help? I know I want to help. I need to do so. I want to do something to help. And, you know, she would always just say, oh, no, we're good. We're good. We're good. And then the other friends that just say, no, we're bringing you dinner every Wednesday. It's just going to happen. So just deal with it. Now, you don't have to eat it, but we're going to bring it to you. And they just brought it. And she said, amazingly, it was the greatest blessing of all time because for some reason, every Wednesday is when her life would fall apart. But she always knew her friends would be bringing her dinner. And so maybe a lot of us need to learn simply the idea that we don't always have to ask if we can help. Maybe sometimes you just need to intuit or sense if they need the help. And then if they do, just organize it. You can always freeze, you know, some food that that somebody brings over. You can take a casserole and put the casserole in the freezer if you've got too much food. But other than that, just serve and give and care. And it, they've talked about the fact about how how everything is more important now, how everybody in the family is now more willing to pick up and, and help around the house. Um, when uh, the mom, Susan Colliker, would ask, you know, if one of the kids to take the garbage out or who wants to take the garbage out? If none of the kids respond, then Dave, who has the brain tumor and is uh, now in a wheelchair, would say, oh, I'll take it out. And everybody, all the kids immediately would jump up and run to go take the garbage out. So even though it is a horrendous thing to go through, um, they talked about the fact that there's benefits. It's changing their family. It's changing the fact that they know they know more clearly what matters most. They know the importance of family and how it comes first. They say, I love you more. They're more connected. They're more real. And the the benefit is something that was supposed to create a life expectancy of five years has given David nine. And so they feel grateful and they feel like they're living on borrowed time, but they're grateful for it. And um, I, I guess everybody in the end of the book group, a lot of people are like, well, yeah, maybe not everybody needs a brain tumor, but if we could learn the lessons of it um, and, and take in the, the lessons. And why I bring it up is um, it's uh, it's brain, I can't, I think it's like Brain Health Awareness Month. And the funny thing about our lives, the funny thing about our health is very rarely do we ever get our brains scanned. Um, but today, you know, there's a lot that can go wrong in your brain and we don't pay attention to it. We know that everyone wears pink for breast cancer awareness. Uh, this is the month where you wear gray for gray matter awareness because gray matter is the healthy uh, is the healthy brain tissue. And so 
just be thinking about it and just be grateful and know that uh, you may not need a brain tumor, but you can live the lessons that we all learn. Again, the name of the book is Everybody Needs a Brain Tumor. Um, David Colliker is the author. He wrote it with his son, John. It's just a quick read. It's something you could read in a night, but it is something, too, that uh, you might want to read with your kids and talk about the importance of family and all the other principles that come with it. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. In our lives, there's there's a lot of things, big and little, right, that that occupy our mind and our energies. Uh, I've, I've kind of – I'm a big believer that our thinking – deeply impacts what we feel, right? So if we tend to think negative thoughts, you might feel more negative things. If you tend to, um, you know, think that there's a lot of hope and opportunity in the world, you tend to feel that. If you feel that, you tend to go looking for it. You do different things. So thinking leads to feelings. Feelings lead to actions. Actions lead to what we're becoming. It's a fairly basic, what I call a change model. And um, I found that there's certain little lies, maybe myths, Things that we believe that actually may be stunting some of our true growth. It may be stunting us, keeping us from being the person we want to be. And I wanted to review some of those um, those lies, those myths that uh, that we think that really, I think sometimes in a way they depress us. They make us a little bit more um, exhausted with our lives. One, for example, one of these hidden lies is the idea that, you know, if you have a natural gift that's actually better than um, than any other gift you may have acquired over time, right? So, for example, um, if you're naturally musical and it comes really easy to you and you can just get it and it get you get it really well, I know a lot of people that revere that as actually a better thing, as as more valuable than the person maybe that isn't naturally as gifted in music but works really hard to get good at it. You know, we have a lot of people that, that sit there and, you know, the, the person that has the naturally perfect, you know, shaped body or the naturally healthy um, physique or the one that just naturally I mean I've had my sisters frustrated because some of their friends just had natural curl in their hair but my sisters have to work at it every day to get their hair curly or the guy that's just naturally charismatic or um you know the one that just naturally is smart is that a better gift than the one that works at it the reality is, is some of us, you know, there's this different mindset we can pick up. And we've talked about it on the show with Carol Dweck, whether you have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And people that think that things are fixed, they are just what they are. They like the idea that some people are just naturally gifted. But there's another mindset that says, no, 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 we can grow. We can become better. We can adapt and we can get good at stuff that maybe we weren't naturally good at. And that growth mindset is a really important mindset because if you think that only natural gifts are worth anything, then you might be setting yourself up to actually never have to do anything because the reality is a lot of our biggest you know, advancements in life didn't come just naturally. They came by people working and adapting and changing. So let's blow up that myth that if somebody's just naturally good at something, they're obviously better than those that work hard. If you've never, if you've ever met somebody that was naturally gifted that never worked on their gift, you know very quickly that having a gift that you don't work on doesn't make you that great. It actually may make make you 
lose the gift, right? So it might be more important to realize that the best gifts are the ones that we actually appreciate a lot and the most and that we work on day in and day out. Another thing that another lie that I think we tell ourselves is that, oh, I could never handle X. If this happened to me, I could never handle that. I I mean, I could never handle losing a child. I could never handle uh, my parents dying. I could never handle such a thing. Be careful ever telling yourself that lie because the reality is you could. You know, humans are notoriously bad at predicting what we're good at and what we're not good at. I mean, most people think they're really good drivers, and the reality is, eh, you're not so good. You really aren't a great driver. So be careful thinking that you could never do something simply because, you know, A, you may have to, you may have to face that terror someday, and the reality is uh, you, you'll handle it. You wouldn't want to handle it. It maybe is a better thing to say. I could never handle X. Instead of saying that, maybe say, I would never want to handle X. But if it happened to you, the reality is you'd you'd handle it and you'd probably kill it. You'd do a great job. Again, yesterday, if you remember, I was talking about my friend, uh, David Colliker, who has a brain tumor and he wrote a book, Everyone Should Have a Brain Tumor. Um, And the reality is he would he would have probably thought I could never handle a brain tumor. I, I could never go through that. But when you're forced to go through something, you know what's amazing? You go through it and you'll handle it and you won't even just handle it. You'll do an awesome job at it. And then interestingly, it becomes not so much of just a horrible trial that destroyed you. It becomes the thing that refined you. It becomes the thing that actually makes you who you really are. So uh, two myths that we got to watch out for, two lies that we tend to tell ourselves. The natural gifts are the only good gifts, right? And that I could never handle X. And in reality, all gifts that you work hard at are worth having, and uh, you can handle a lot more than you ever thought you could. Anyway, just a little advice from your coach, your guide on the side. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Balancing work and family responsibilities is a juggling act that can be very stressful for parents. How do you spend more time with your children but still finish all of your work obligations? Here to speak with us today is Sabina Nawaz, a world-renowned CEO and leadership coach, and uh, also a a speaker, a writer, an author, and uh, we appreciate your time, Sabina. Thank you so much for being with us. Matt, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. You bet. This is... um, it's such a big deal as a parent because you out, you're out, you're making a living, you're doing what you can to be a success and to you know to to make a make some headway um, financially. Meanwhile, you got kids back at home. You're starting to feel this weird guilt. How can I spend more time? I've got a lot to teach them, but oh, I don't have time to do it. Um, do you see that? Do you see all of your CEOs, the leaders that you coach and work with, are they struggling with balancing work and family? Absolutely. It is one of the most common questions that gets asked at panels of executives when, uh, when they're in conferences, for example, and they struggle with this a lot. I'll tell you a story. One of the clients I work with holds a dinner the day before they have a leadership seminar that I teach them. Yeah. 
And at the dinner, the executive who sponsors it goes around the table and asks people as an icebreaker to say, what's one thing you're proud of in the past six months? And what's one thing that you regret? The number one regret, Matt, any guesses what they come up with? Uh, number one regret, not, you know, not being home enough. Exactly. Not spending enough time outside of work with their families. And more often than not, the ones who have younger children tend to say this. Mm. This is the most common regret. It comes up every single time we have that dinner, no matter the group, over and over again. Mm. Well, so and absolutely, it, it's a big struggle. Well, you and you want, I mean, it's hard because you're working and you want to teach, you know, skills and be a good father or a good mother and um, but it takes time. It takes energy. So you, I know you've you've got kids. You've figured some of this out, and 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 got you've got some great ideas for us. How do we make time to be with our kids and also still get everything done? Matt, I'll have to correct you first for a moment. I really don't have it figured out, especially if you ask my fifteen-year-old. Yeah. I've got two oh, yeah. teenagers in the house. Don't trust <laughs> so. the teenager, though. They, they're they just saying that. Maybe I should put him on air. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> how, yes, so your question is, how do, how do how we do How do you do it? Yeah. If I had one silver bullet answer, I'll be, I'd be sipping uh, an umbrella drink on a beach and not working anymore. Right. I think that some of it goes back to, for me, it, I've, I've been thinking deeply about this topic for a long time, ever since I left my job at Microsoft. When I decided to leave, I was seven months pregnant with my second child. I already had a two-year-old. My husband, I have the fortune, good fortune, stays home with the kids. So it wasn't a matter of balancing the logistics, but I realized that I was missing out. Mm. And even though I had a blank check from the CEO of the company when I left, I really wanted to not have that regret that I now hear many of my clients express. I can't say that I don't fully have that regret. I struggle with it myself. Yeah. But the way I've arrived at it is really, in many ways, boils down to multitasking, which is how do we involve our kids in the work that we do? That's a great idea. Like, why not, right? You've got to do the work anyway. Yes. And um, some of the things you learn as a, as an employee, as somebody that's out doing work, it's it's valuable lessons for your kids. So why not involve them? It is. Exactly. It is. And what I also, a light bulb went on for me when I coached, as I started coaching, and I, I'd coached quite a few people by then, probably close to 100, and noticed some patterns. One of the patterns I noticed that people I was coaching in their 40s, their 50s, was where they got really stuck with one, they got attached to a particular meaning. You're, I know you're about living longer and loving stronger, yeah. and I don't see acts of leadership as, and people in positions of executive leadership doing anything different. They're extending their shelf life, the shelf life of their organizations, and loving stronger, loving what they do, loving the people they work with, loving their customers, and so on. And they, the pressures of the job sometimes take them away from that purpose. It disconnects them. The higher up they go, they get more and more disconnected, and they get stuck in a particular story they tell themselves 
especially when they get into conflict. Mm. That person is out to get me, or that person doesn't know what they're talking about. And, and then the, the choices they make are pretty destructive. By the time they come to me, we have to do a lot of unwinding and a lot of deprogramming, if you will. So as I started thinking about that, I thought, okay, so how do I get my kids started on this much earlier in life? Mm-hmm. And, and that's how we came up with this, with this game of uh, multiple meanings. Yeah, talk about that. That is, this is such a great way to help people realize to not jump to conclusions. Exactly, exactly. Not just not jump to conclusions and therefore open up, expand the range of options that we can choose to act with, but also increase our empathy for somebody else. They might be doing something for some reasons that have nothing to do with me. And just last night, I was, I was actually quizzing my son, saying, hey, I'm going to be on the radio with Dr. Matt Townsend. What suggestions do you have for me? What have you learned yeah. about work from what I've done? And my younger son said, you know, Mom, whenever I'm in this mode of mind reading, where I'm trying to read somebody else's mind and ascribe meanings to them, I think about multiple meanings and I start doing that. So how it goes is, we usually do this on the car ride on the way to school. We pick something, somebody that we observe as we're driving. It could be a driver in a car on the way, uh, in the lane across from us on the bridge. And we'll say, well, what meanings can we make of this person? Hmm. Obviously knowing that all the meanings we make may have nothing to do with the reality that she is experiencing. And one, one of us might say, gosh, she seems to have a frowny face. And so maybe she has just had a fight with her son at home and is going to work with a frowny face. And someone else will say, actually, I didn't see a frowny face. I saw a really thoughtful look on her face. And she must have a presentation to her boss today. And so she's going, going to work with her head in the presentation. Mm. Someone else might say, maybe she got pulled over right before she crossed the bridge and got a ticket. Mm. So you can see in the moment, we are starting to expand the ways in which we see something. And you're making it up, but we're all making it up anyway, right? We are all making it up all the time. And the way we make things up are are habitual in a lot of ways. We have some default ways of waking things up. So patterns, these patterns get imprinted early on in our lives, and then they get activated as pressures rise. Yeah. Well, and it, I guess what you're teaching your kids is that in the end, um, we can always expand meaning by just figuring out other ways to look at any situation. And um, by the way, a great work tool, but an, an awesome parenting tool. Because, And by the way, to have your kids learn it at 15 or younger – you've set them up for a pretty effective life at being able to see things from different perspectives. <laughs> Thank you. Much as I love, love, love my job, I, I thought, how can I get my kids to not have this conversation with their coaches when they become CEOs or whatever? Right. Right. You, um, and by the way, another thing that you brought up and, and have mentioned in um, some of your writings are is this idea that Sitting down and just having the discussion with your family about your time management is a way to teach them time management. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. It's not just having the discussion, but actually involving them in the time management. 
my older son and I, ever since he was eight years old, we would sit down because he, he started complaining. He said, Mom, I don't see you enough. And, and I, I have to admit, I am a workaholic. <laughs> so yeah. I'd say, Mom, I don't see you enough. And I, I want you to do this or that with me. And I'd say, oh, but I've got this other thing to do. And I always had this other thing to do. And so we came up on this idea of why don't we sit down and block some time on the calendar together that becomes dedicated time. So we would block out time six months in advance because obviously the next week was always booked up. Right. And I set this expectation. I said, all right, we're going to block out about two days worth of time every week. And I will assume that half of that will go away as, as the calendar gets closer. So I set that expectation up front, and it was wonderful because the half that went away still went away in ways that I hadn't anticipated. I could deal with the unexpected. I could take on a bigger project versus the day-to-day stuff that, that had to be done. Mm. That is so <laughs> great, yeah. And and so, your child was a part of it, so uh, exactly. he, he felt more empowered. Exactly. And And every once in a while, we'd forget to do it, and he'd go, Mom, I think it's time for me to sit down with you and block out your calendar. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great thing. You even involve them in your work. I mean, helping them uh, read quotes. and You you read a lot of books, and you ca- capture a lot of quotes in those books that you want to use for your speeches. And talk about how you involve your kids in doing your work with you. <laughs> that started almost exactly a year ago today, Matt, because I'm doing a lot of research in preparation for writing my own book. And so I read 50 books last year on topics related to leadership. As I was reading them, because I was doing this for research and I knew the things I was extracting from these books needed to make it into my book proposal, I had to take notes. And I started getting overwhelmed quite quickly. I've got to read the books, take the notes, and do all the rest of my stuff. So first I paid my assistant and I said, hey, please take notes from the passages I've marked down. And then I thought, wait a minute, why not my kids? Mm. It's turned out it was such a serendipitous thing. It's turned out to be a wonderful way to involve them. They, they get money, so they're motivated to do it. Right. Obviously, there are many ways to do this without motivating them through money. But our dinner table conversations have become so much richer. We, I remember the first book, uh, my younger son transcribed was called The Culture Map. And at the dinner table, he started talking about, okay, so mom, you grew up in India. And, and therefore, in the culture map, how you deal with conflict would have been here. Mm. We live in North America, and therefore, it would be our, our point in the map would be here. How did that work out when you first came in 1986 to the United States? So it was a very, very interesting conversation that took me by surprise because I thought here he was just doing a rote job, but yeah. actually absorbing stuff. And so since then, we've talked about a whole range of leadership topics uh, through doing that. But what, we, what is even more interesting, because of course he said, I'm reading books. They said, I'm reading books that I would never check out in the library. Right. However, something even more interesting has come out of that is work ethic learning about work ethic. One of the books that my older son transcribed, he was in a hurry to go to his Model UN offsite, and it wasn't the best quality job he had done, and I pointed that out to him. 
when he came back from his offsite, he said, Mom, I'm going to give you back $5 from what you paid me because it wasn't to the quality that you expected. Yeah, Clearly, it, that is... I wasn't pressuring him about the money. Yeah, right. But he's but he's learning. Is... I mean, and learning to negotiate, too. Learning to negotiate, learning to make the client happy and do what's right for the client. Mm. Again, we're speaking with Sabina Nawaz, who is a global CEO coach, a leadership keynote speaker, a writer, and uh, who is doing has been working in over 26 different countries. She advises C-level executives in Fortune 500 companies, coaches them on how to be more effective leaders. And Sabina, um, if as we as we're kind of wrapping this up, talk about what you know. If there's one thing that each of us could do as parents. To be able to, I guess, I mean, because this is this is a multiple faceted issue where we want our kids to learn, we want to be their teachers, we want to be there for them, and the realities of life are that we've also got to work. What what's the one thing that we could all do today that you that you sense would make a difference in in creating that bridge between family life and work life? To me, it boils down to one word, Matt, which is connect. And that word has multiple meanings, speaking of multiple meanings. It's about connecting to your own purpose, your own work, and then connecting work to your children and, and as a way of connecting with them. Hmm. So being transparent about what you're working on, what are the challenges, not just what's wonderful about it, in, of course, appropriate, bounded ways for their age, and then involving them in it, and then discussing it, having the meta discussion, debriefing that. So these are all part of that connection about forming those relationships. Leadership is about courageously facing your relationships, connecting to your purpose. And it's no different the conversations you have at the boardroom table the con- than the conversations you have at the family table, which are also about connection. So how about we connect the two since our lives are not – we don't check in, check out – we don't check our work at the door when we walk into that dining room table. So powerful. Sabina, great work. Thank you so much for your time and your um, your insights. Sabina Nawaz, you can go find out more about her work and her coaching at her website, sabinanawaz.com, sabinanawaz.com. And um, just, boy, uh, leadership is about courageously addressing and, and impacting your relationships. Leadership 101, right? Leaders need followers. They need people that are willing to follow them. And relationships are the way that uh, we grow the ability to have people want to follow us. We'll continue the journey to a little Coach's Corner up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back. Um, as we're all out there doing what we can to raise our children, our goal would be that they could be independent of us, right? That that finally, you know, when they go away to college, that they can do it and they can be independent. And uh, eventually we could circle back and create a really interdependent relationship with them where we are independent, they are independent, and we can go create something really powerful and wonderful together. The assumption is, though, that that takes place. And so one of the things I wanted to talk about in this Coach's Corner are some ways that we can help our children become more independent. 
and and raise them on to a level of independence. Now, um, one reason I bring this up is because I think we think they'll they'll do it, you know, just by the progression and maturity of life. That by the time they finally graduate from high school, they will be independent, right? Or when they get married, you know, they'll be independent. But it reminds me of um, a Steve Carell, Michael Scott scene in The Office where he is in financial trouble. He has a lot of debt and somebody, Creed, um, from the show suggests that he go and uh, and basically declare bankruptcy. And because he doesn't have a clue, Michael Scott doesn't, this character, he – uh, he walks out into the the office where everyone is standing, and he yells at the top of his lungs in declaration. By the way, I declare bankruptcy. He declares his bankruptcy, and everyone is they're basically you know Michael. It's gonna you can't just declare it. You you, you got to actually you, you got to file the legal papers, and you've got to do all of that. Here's here's a call. I declare bankruptcy. (laughs) Well done, Michael. Now you have declared bankruptcy. It's not enough for our child to just scream at the top of the lungs, I'm mature or I'm independent enough. You know, at some point they've got to show it. And so um, there are some things we should be doing, I think, as parents to, to help our children and to facilitate their independence. And I teach there's a lot of ways our kids have got to be independent, right? We want them to be whole children, healthy children. So we want them spiritually independent, socially independent, emotionally independent, intellectually independent. We want them financially independent. We want them to be able to be free to make real decisions on their own. And so let me just uh, go through some of these forms of independence, and we can all look at our own children and say, okay, maybe I need to zoom in on this one a little bit. One of the ways I talk about it is, and this would be kind of the center of the onion, is we've got to have our kids on a level of spiritual independence, I call it. Are they able to connect on their own to their deeper meaning, their deeper purpose, their higher power in life? Do they have a relationship with a higher power? If it's God, if it's, uh, you know, whatever your belief system is, we have got to be connected to that higher power in our life, especially in how that higher power influences what our purpose in life is really about. Do your kids have a, a, a sense in their life that their, their life means something, that it, they have a purpose here, that they have a very personal you know, mission that they are sent here to accomplish while they're here on this earth? Do they sense that? Are they pretty closely connected to what they're passionate about? Have you started with these teenagers to help them identify what their passions are, what their interests are? Do they have you have you helped them figure out what their strengths are? What is it about their character that this world needs? Do they recognize that they are here as an agent, that they're here to make choices, that their that their destiny's not set, that they get to to lead it and push? These are all very kind of spiritually grounded ideas. And it doesn't, I guess, necessarily mean you have to be religious, but spiritually connected for sure. And uh, if you're so inclined, as I am, to to uh, you know be religious, then go be religious. But use these ideas to make sure that they understand what right and wrong is, that they have a methodology in their brain to go figure out what is true. That way, when life throws them a curveball, they can run it through their spirituality and see if they can't 
make something out of it. Another way that they could be spiritually independent or to be independent is is what I call emotional independence. Can they keep their cool and help others keep theirs? Do they understand their emotions? Do they really truly get how they work emotionally? Do they know where they're strong emotionally? Do they know where their emotional weaknesses are? Do they have uh, things they're battling, issues like anxiety or depression? Do they have a hard time focusing? It's, there's a lot of little things in our lives that, that make it hard for us emotionally. Have we lived a history with our family that may have impacted us negatively emotionally? Do we have um, some interesting uh, issues where we, we can't trust other people, where we can't where we don't have a, a view or a sense of ourselves that's healthy? Do we have any addictions that our emotions are keeping us stuck to? Do we have self-control? And these are things we want to teach our kids, right? So that they can, they can feel the same emotions as everyone else, but it doesn't mean we're going to act on the emotions. Do your kids know how to cool themselves down emotionally when they're getting heated up? Do they know how to call a timeout on their life and, and walk away for a bit and come back and return and re-engage? Do they know how to manage their anger? Do they know how to be self-aware? Basic emotionally independent skill sets. So we have spiritual skill sets. We have emotional skill sets. Uh, the, the third one we'll talk about uh, this break is, is simply about financial. Do they have the ability to earn? Do they have the skills, the tools they need? Can they actually get a job? Are they set up to go to college and or a trade school and get the skills they need to get out there and, and be independent? Because if they're not financially independent, then they might have to always live with you, right? And it doesn't mean they have to be a millionaire. It doesn't mean they, they have to you know even go to college. But they need to be somewhat geared to go be able to make a living. Not just a living, do they know how to manage their emotion? Do they understand debt? Do they understand credit? Do they understand how some of the basic financial um, issues of the world will go? Then it's not enough to just be spiritually independent and to be emotionally independent. Are you financially independent as well? Basic ideas. Think about your kids. How are they doing? And what can you do today to help them in one of those areas, to help them be more spiritually independent, more emotionally independent, more financially independent. By the way, if you hand them more money or if you hand them just your spirituality or if you hand them just your emotional help every time they need it, you might not actually be helping them be independent. You may actually help them be spiritually, emotionally, or financially dependent. And the more we do that as parents, the less uh, independent they'll ever get. So let's uh, let's start looking at it. Just some basic guides, some help, some help, and some insight into how we can grow more independent kids. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can on the program to help you and your family live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. These days, there are a few structured career pathways. People seeking employment require a diversity of skills, including creativity, versatility, initiative, the ability to spot opportunities and innovation. Flexibility is also required because the 40-year career and retirement package is no longer the norm. So how does one raise successful kids 
uh, that can handle such an unstable future. Dr. Richard Wren joined us not long ago to talk about his book, Raising Can-Do Kids, Giving Children the Tools to Thrive in a Fast-Changing World. I began the interview by asking, what was the motivation for him writing this book? Well, Matt, we, it was sort of two streams. And as you mentioned, I wrote it with Jen Prosek, who's an entrepreneur. And, you know, we're coming at it from totally different angles, Jen being someone who's out in the business world, uh, who runs a company, who hires lots of young people. And for myself, being a developmental psychologist as a researcher, we both came to the same conclusion, and which is that, you know, all this obsession we have right now in trying to make sure kids are going to be successful is leading parents, uh, good-intentioned parents, to a lot of practices that really undermine kids' ability to be successful later in life. And, you know, what we found was, you know, thinking both about the, the current research, but also, you know, that perspective of when kids get out into the world beyond college, what are the skills that they're going to need to be successful? A total mismatch with how kids are growing up today. And so we wanted to orient the book both with that long view of what what it's going to mean to be successful later in life with, um, you know, what we call evidence-based practice, yeah. uh, dipping into the research um, and thinking through how kids really develop socially, personally, cognitively, and especially in terms of those skills they're going to need, uh, what we all need now, but we think kids are going to just need more and more in the future. You call that, I guess, a resourcefulness factor. Is that right? That our children yeah. need to have resourcefulness, and um, we can either set up that resourcefulness as they're gro- growing up, or we can actually hinder their ability to be resourceful. Yeah, you know, one of the ways we do this, Matt, and I talk to parents a lot in a, in a lot of capacities, which I enjoy doing. So, I, I, you know, I'm a parent too, and we're all kind of dealing with this thing, and I think it's pervasive that no one knows what it's going to be like for, let's say, a five-year-old today, right? Right. What it's going to be like, what's the world going to be like when they're 25? You know, what we what we are seeing is that, you know, how you used to think kids might be successful. You find a career, you go into it, uh, you work your way up, you know, a proverbial ladder, etc. You know, that's not how, how those kids are going to be growing up. We already see it in the workplace now, but kids might have not just multiple jobs across multiple, you know, companies or wherever context they work, they may have multiple professions, and those professions are going to pull on skills that we don't even know are going to exist yet. You know, if you just think about how technology has changed how we all work over even the last 10 years. Um, So there's this funny thing that happens. We get worried that, you know, the world's going to be more and more complicated and changing and all that. But the reaction is to be so nervous that we just try to make them successful right now, and, yeah. and, as opposed to saying, look, that's what the world's going to be like. Let's give them. They're going to have to be resourceful. They're going to have to be you know, resilient. They're going to need some optimism. They're going to have to be innovative, problem-solving, and creative. And, and there's going to be a lot of ways they're going to have to collaborate. And you know, those ways of collaborating with people get more complicated. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's, you can be working with people all over the world via, you know, multiple mechanisms uh, in addition to face-to-face. And it's like, so how do you prepare kids for the unknown? 
give them all those skills that help you take on the NFL. Yeah, and it's I, like as principals, they'll apply in everything they do, whether – I mean even with the changing future, you know, innovation and your ability to innovate with others, that's not a principle that's going to die. You're going to always need to know how to innovate. You're going to always need to know how to problem solve and be creative and be optimistic. All of those are things that will only enhance life. Yeah, and I think, Matt, you know, the, the, and for me talking to, to Jen and, and for her to reflect on what she hears, as, you know, out uh, sort of in the employment force, um, you know, all those skills have always been important, right? We've known that, and they've always been supportive of success. I think the, the difference for, I think you see it already now, but in the future, I think the difference is going to be that they're going to be essential. They're going to yeah. be actually the epicenter of what you need to be successful. I think kids feel it now, you know, they, they go to, you know, they work hard, they do all these activities, they go to a great school, and guess what? You go out in the world, and it's not like you've got this 40-year career waiting for you, mm-hmm. right? It's like, what do I do now? You bet. And, and how, the, how, you know, the job force can change uh, quickly. You know, positions can change in a day. No, you know, I've, I've I've seen I've seen that for example in journalism how you know over the course of of two years how an editor's job might Change. morph just depend trying to keep up with the world you that's know, right print, print media right to online and then how much do you include video and how much do you include social media and it's something that's not just this fixed thing it's something they have to surf you know and, and I do a lot of blogging and I've seen how that world has changed tremendously over just a few years. And I mean, where you can make part. a career blogging, you know, you, you used to yeah. have to be a reporter to make right. a career, but now you can build your own audience. You don't even need, you know, the big networks. You can just build your own blog. Yeah, that's, I mean, the, the future, it's such a strange place, isn't it? So having these dynamic skills, which have always mattered, um, but really being good at it. And, and But it's almost like it seems like, Richard, that as parents we have to, we have to let our kids do some growing up. And, and it's almost like we're so afraid of them failing that we don't allow any of these dynamic skills in. We just kind of ensure success. But that doesn't set them up for a good future. Yeah, and, and I think, Matt, the, the thing, and I'm sympathetic to, to parents, you know, because they're part of this bigger sort of culture. So the reaction has been, right, give your kid, in essence, more and more assets. What do we mean by assets? Right, a transcript, extracurriculars. Yeah. Right, right. just things that make you, you know, you think you're going to make you stand out. Try to get into what's defined as an elite college, and that's just a whole other conversation, right, about how that <laughs> has spun out of control. Right. With all the amazing schools we have in this country, you know, the one thing we shouldn't be worried about is that our kids aren't going to get a great education somewhere. There's phenomenal schools everywhere. But, you know, what, what I think the leap of faith, so I understand that for parents, you know, but I think the leap of faith has to come a couple places. One is to understand that that's, not going to give them really the skills. And secondly, you know, there's a lot of talk right now. We have to get parents to back off, leave their kids alone, etc. I don't think that's the case. I think we're talking about good parents, and there's plenty of ways for them to be involved, but to be involved differently and to be more supportive of how kids develop. And your role is actually 
actually, in my view, in our book, when we go through it, it actually argues for what I would say is a more involved role, but involved differently. Mm. So more involved, meaning less activities outside of the home, more time at home interacting with parents, but with parents doing things that I think come naturally to them, that they'll be reassured. You know, the real cutting-edge research is showing, we'll give your kids these skills. One concrete example, you know, unstructured play at home. You know, the old building blocks, yeah. you know, all those kinds of things. You know, you can, you can, as a parent, you don't have to just put your kid alone in a room. You can be there, and we talk in the book of all these ways that the research is showing about how you can really promote problem solving. Because not that you know that's what you want every second of your moment with your child, mm-hmm. you know, doing. But it actually gives you tools to really relax and play, which in a way that I think would be you know fun for most parents. But the thing is, you have to realize, don't dismiss that. That's actually the gift. That's actually the time when you're. When you're letting them be creative and you're giving them a lot of, not telling them what to do, but like, what are you going to do next? Have them talk. And what are you trying to build? If something doesn't work. It's like, wow, how yeah. are you, gonna, you know, what are you going to do with that? And, you know, that interactive kind of thing, you don't necessarily see it at home. You don't see it in a transcript. But I'll tell you what, you put those kids in a laboratory with cognitive scientists and they're talking about these kids are acting like scientists, right? I mean, yeah. Toddlers are amazing with their skills, but we've we got to give them the time. And parents, you know, can really do it. They're, they've got the, the tools. And we and, want parents to be, in some sense, better involved. And not so. Not, it's not backing off. It's being more involved mm-hmm. in, in better proactive, supportive ways for their kids. That uh, is Richard Rand, um, author of the book Raising Can-Do Kids. Giving children the tools to thrive in the fast-changing world. Doing what we can on the program to give you the tools you need to live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I would suggest you forge more character. Your guide on the side. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. So I wanted to take a little bit of time um, and talk about um, thinking and our thoughts. I have a lot of people that I work with uh, in my practice that are their brains are going a million miles an hour. And they have too many thoughts coming in, and it, with all this technology and with constant interruptions and the media and you know text messaging, emails, they've got a lot of thoughts. And so I wanted to help you out today and help you figure out how to, to manage your thinking, your thoughts. Did you know um, some research suggests we have anywhere from twenty to 70,000 thoughts a day? Right. Because and by the way, remember, some of the thoughts are subconscious and some are conscious. Some you actually think, oh, I like flowers. I'm having that thought right now about flowers. But some thoughts you don't even think about. Ninety percent of thought you don't even think about. How much and how much of this has to do with social media, TV watching, reading, reading. Interesting. Right. And then you might put something into your head just because you saw it on social media and your, your brain at one level is still processing it. 
and then you might actually bring it into the the cognitive state where you now conscious state where you share it with another. So these thoughts get in our head, and I found that there's uh, there's four different kinds of thoughts that I bring up. I mean, I'm sure if I talked to a neuropsychiatrist, we'd find seven, but I'm not a neuropsychiatrist. But I, I have some some ideas for how you can get the thoughts out of you. One of the keys, by the way, to thinking is thoughts are they stay in your head because of energy, right? It takes energy to keep a thought, to dwell on a thought, to process a thought, to access a thought. So if you're having seventy thousand thoughts a day, you are probably exhausted. So here's some ways to get these thoughts out of your head. And to do it effectively. So some of the thoughts we have in life are just to organize us, right? Uh, the thought about scheduling, your appointment. They're the thoughts that we have in our life to keep us healthy, to make sure we don't get killed. Uh, appointments we need to go to, places we need to go. And I know a lot of people that don't, they just think they're going to wing that. So what I have found is if you want to be able to create some peace of mind, you could immediately take all of those thoughts that are important, like don't forget to pick up your kids. Don't forget to unplug the iron. All of these things that are really critical, you can now use your technology to help you schedule because you can now just press a button and say, Siri, set a reminder for me to unplug the iron at 8.50 when I'm leaving. One of my wife's biggest pet peeves is the dozens of alarms that I set on my phone to remind me to do everything. No, but see, see, that's her pet peeve. But you know what? Don't do any of that and then see what her pet peeve is. <laughs> I'm going to get anything done. It's going to be this guy gets nothing done. So if you could just eliminate a lot of thoughts by getting them scheduled, getting them planned, getting them in there, you would actually use the energy to tell Siri or however you want to schedule it, get it on your appointment calendar. That energy would help eliminate the thoughts. So you don't need to keep thinking it over and over and over and over. Have you ever gotten up in the middle of the night and you had a thought, oh, my heavens, I forgot my reports due tomorrow. And then all of a sudden you had to work on it. That's your subconscious waking it up. So those thoughts are still alive in us. Another thought are the thoughts that connect us. How many times have you been sitting there, uh, you heard something at work, you heard a story that you really like, and it reminded you of somebody, and you thought, hey, I really ought to connect to this person. A lot of us then, we don't connect then. So the rule is the minute you think it, do it. So if I think, hey, I really ought to forward this or share this with my wife, share it. Because if I would take that immediate thought of my wife and immediately create an act to share that thought, then that thought will actually go away from me. But have you ever had a situation where you thought, I really ought to call so-and-so, maybe you were prompted to do it, and you never called so-and-so. So you thought about it the next morning, then you thought about it the next afternoon, and the next morning, and the next afternoon, and that occupies energy and time, and you still haven't done it. But if you're having 70,000 thoughts a day, and that – I mean that – you would assume that that means that so many of these thoughts are jumping at you all at one time. Yeah. How do you prioritize and say let's take care of this thought instead of this thought so that it will go away? Well, I might do it this – when you had the thought, right? Like if all of a sudden I'm, I'm meeting with somebody and they say, hey, so can you meet Friday? I wouldn't say let me go check on that. I would say right, let me check and I check right now because – I'm doing it now, so I don't – otherwise, I just delay it and I create 15 more thoughts of it. Do it now. If I have a prompting that I really ought to call so-and-so, I would either schedule a call to so-and-so or I might not call him. I might text him and I might just do it right there. Hey, I just met a guy that mentioned your company and I thought of you. How are you doing? I'd just check in. Now, that will create issues. I get that. But 
you're already going to have the issue if you thought or felt prompted to do something and you didn't do it. There is a reason we keep thinking to connect to people because it helps us stay alive and healthier. There are some other thoughts that block us, right? Those thoughts where we feel inferior, inadequate, we feel imperfect, we feel like a failure, some of those negative, ugly thoughts that we can't get out of our heads, or you know, the thought, I should apologize to so-and-so. One of the things that um, I might suggest you do is if it's an apology thought, just do the apology as fast as you can. Just get it done, band-aid off, rip it out. But if it's a if it's a typical thought that you're a failing parent, you're just not good enough, then um, I do this thing called data dumping where I suggest to my clients they take all of the energy of whatever they're hurting. Maybe it was a spouse that hurt their feelings or did something and write down what you were feeling. Write one line. Oh, he makes me so mad. I'm so sick of the guy. Then write a second line, but don't write it on a new line on the paper. Write it right on the top of the old line. So you now have written two lines on top, one line on top of the first line. And then write a third line about how that person makes you feel and write it on top of the first two lines you've written. So I've really only, I've written on top of the same line three times. And by doing that over and over and over and over until you get all the energy of the thought or the pain out of your head, you feel better. The pain goes away. And what's cool is it didn't take a form that you can read. So now you can say anything you want in written form and nobody can reread it, which I love. So it allows you a safe way to, uh, to get those thoughts out of you. Last but not least, there are some thoughts that inspire you. Anything you think you're going to that has inspired you, I would blog it, journal it, write it down. I'd get a journal. I'd make a family history. I'd record it. I'd talk it out. But I'd document it. I have a bunch of different sites I go to. But I, if I have an inspiring thought, I write the quote down. I collect a million quotes. And they inspire me. And eventually when I die, my kids are going to have a billion quotes They're not mine. They're from everyone else. I'm constantly writing and learning. So just ways to get thoughts out of your head. Not that you need that, of course. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. There are a few tricks uh, to emotional management that I think can help you take control of this fight or flight part of your brain. The fight or flight part of your brain, remember, is it's there to protect you. But as we learned, the protection is just as much for your physiology, your body, as it is for your psychology or your identity. So our body, our, our fight or flight instincts will kick in just as strong and just as aggressively for the need to protect, you know, don't make fun of my high school as it will for, um, you know, I'm going to kill you. It's, they're just – they're threats. And it's, it's not like the body can always distinguish, especially because the amygdala is so wired to fight or flight instantly. So some rules that we teach in my program, um, again, and, and uh, Dr. Kaplan hit it perfectly, one of them is just to start noticing your thinking. The more aware you are and the more aware we all become of our own thinking and how we react to certain events, how we see certain things, the more abilities we have to handle these events. Again, it doesn't eliminate the fact that I have issues, but as soon as I know that, boy, I'm really sensitive to certain things. For example, I know a bigger trigger for me is um, is more when my kids, like, question my authority. And when they question my authority, that's more likely to set me off than um, – or my ex- my experience than almost anything else they can do. They can call me a name. They can say whatever they want. 
But when, you know, when I say something like, you know what, okay, time for bed, you guys got to go to bed. And they're like, well, mom said we didn't have to. Boy, what has your mom got to do with this? And off we go. So what triggers you? We want to start to identify what the triggers are. And and generally, I've found that we tend to be triggered by any time we question if we're capable. If you're questioning my capability, if you're questioning if I'm loved, if if I feel what you're doing is attacking me in a way that I feel unlovable, or when I feel unsafe. Those tend to be the three biggest triggers I found. Um, Lack of safety, lack of capability, like I'm just not cutting it anymore, or lack of lovability. So think about it. What triggers you to, you know, to go off? What what's the thing that most pushes you to just walk out of an, a discussion with your wife? Is it that every time she brings something up, do you feel like she's questioning if you're capable, if you're good enough to do this kind of stuff? Do you question if you're loved or do you question um, you know, if you're going to be safe physically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, financially? So once you start to become more aware, then you can start to understand how your triggers go off and what works for you. I mean, I found a lot of times just breathing, taking a deep breath helps a lot to be able to manage my reactions. Um, Another thing I found is a great tool is anything you can do to get into your what I call your higher brain. Um, One fast way to do that, by the way, is math. If if you would take a million and count down from one million by 17s, I'm going to bet you won't fight about whatever your wife is bringing up, <laughs> right? And one reason is because if you have to go into your high brain and start making sense of something that's more complicated, then all of a sudden you don't have time to just get into your low brain and fight or flight. One of the ways I do this and there's a really interesting um, parallel to it in the court system. If you notice in courts, they have a lot of rules and a lot of uh, ways that you approach the bench, the ways that you, you're allowed to say what you want to say in the courtroom. They have so much structure and so many rules to, to uh, obey and so much just protocol for how you handle the courtroom that I think the protocol itself keeps the people from fighting or flighting and reacting to each other. I mean, think about it. You have people in a court system that truly do not like each other. They hate each other, but there's so much process that that is demanding their brain power. Otherwise, they lose the case, right? They, they'll get the judge mad at them, so they follow the protocol. And when you follow the protocol, the process is nice and slow and methodical, and the protocol keeps you from reacting, overly reacting to each other in the courtroom. I found the same is true in our in our relationship. So we teach our couples when we're teaching them how to have a have to have a serious conversation that might normally set us off that there's some protocols we're going to follow. We're going to learn to recognize each other emotion each other's emotions. I call this getting real. Recognize the emotion, explore the story behind it. Behind every emotion there's a story. And if I can let the person that's I'm, that we're, I'm struggling with, that I'm arguing with, share their story without me jumping in and without me reacting to their emotion, and I explore their story, I'll be able to hear where they're really starving. Deep down in the story, you'll hear where they're really being affected. You'll hear if they have a lovable issue, if they have a capable issue, if they have a safety issue. I call that stuff the starve stuff. So we recognize their emotion. You seem upset. We explore the story. Tell me what's going on. And I attend 
to what they're saying. I really listen to where they're hurting. And then before I do all of those three things before I try to ever lift the conversation. And to lift the conversation, I try to do what I call – it's a very simple rule that I call the 80-20 rule. I believe in every discussion you have with another human being, 80% of what they're saying you agree with. I agree that the world is complicated today. I agree that, uh, you know, we didn't take care of America like we should have. I admit that uh, we, you know, I've been part of the problem. I accept. I, I affirm. And you just – you go with them wherever they are, where you can go with them. And then you share your side and I have a different side and then you can tell your side. And I don't think that we should, you know, make everybody feel unsafe by saying certain things politically. Does that make sense? So we recognize emotion, we explore, we attend, and we lift conversations. They're skills and they're skills you can learn. I'm teaching them every day. And you know what? You learn. You learn to do it. This stuff works. Um, It's not a silver bullet, but it's a skill. And you can learn to do it. And the more you do it, the easier it gets, I think, for all of us. So great learnings, I think. Uh, That's why we do the show, to give you the tools, the information you need to live healthier, happier lives. We'll take a break. Stick with us. When we come back, we'll continue the journey of emotions. This is The Matt Townsend Show. to stand out is something that many people attempt to do in their lives. They do it with clothes, cars, and accessories. But our next guest, author Jonah Sachs, uh, says the best way to stand out and be creative is to be an unsafe thinker. He joins us now to discuss his new book, Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most. Jonah, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I mean, we do. We try to stand out in a variety of ways. Um, I mean, just I mean, more color, more flash, more zing. But maybe, uh, according to you, it, it might all go back to our thinking. Yeah, this is just a world that's changing so quickly right now around us, and if we're just we're just challenged to change with it as as much as we possibly can. So our old patterns of thinking, our old ways of behaving. They become obsolete quickly, and I think the people who stand out as innovators, and I talked to more than 100 of them for this new book that I wrote, were people who are constantly challenging themselves and trying to think in counterintuitive ways, just questioning whether the way that everyone else was doing something actually made sense and finding some of those places to to squeeze in where no one else was looking. And it's interesting. Um, I mean, thinking is so personal, right? It, but there is kind of a group think, and there are certain thoughts that are appropriate, certain thoughts that are okay, um, and certain thoughts that you just don't ever mess with. They're like the, you know, they're the third rail. <laughs> they're going to kill you. Um, talk about that, because unsafe, I mean, just even the name of the book, Unsafe Ways or Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most, that very thought has got to scare a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's true, that we have these habitual patterns and and lanes that we feel safe in, and that just feels right to us. And, you know, that's great because we do want to keep a certain amount of security in our lives. We can't overload ourselves with risk. But if we're always staying in the lane of our comfort, that's where the real danger comes in. You know, if we're always behaving in the way that we did yesterday, always falling back on the rules of the past. And and you're right. You know, I, I actually have a chapter in the book about morality and about how 
there's certain things that we don't want to question. There's certain things about being good human beings and being moral that we want to hold on to. But sometimes an overly strict sense of morality limits creative options. And one way I look at that is in terms of who, who we're willing to collaborate with and, and talk to. A good deal of psychological science shows that when we collaborate with people who don't agree with us, who don't necessarily share our values um, and don't have the same life experience, we get a lot more creative. Mm. I think a lot of people fear that if they expose themselves to people who disagree with them or from another tribe, they're going to somehow lose their own moral footing. And uh, I really argue that that's not the case, that there's a lot of examples of people getting together and not being necessarily polluted by people on the other side, but collaborating with the enemy and, and just learning a lot more quickly from that while still holding on to a strong sense of who they are. So, yeah, sometimes, sometimes those third rails that we don't want to touch are actually places we should be looking. Oh, that's great. And um, talk about how we, we, we make the transition um, to, to alter our thinking. It seems like some people are really good at just kind of breaking the mold and others are really good at staying within the boundary. How do I actually start to change or to drive my thinking to be a little less predictable, a little less safe? It's interesting. When I, when I first looked at this, I thought, yeah, there must be some people who just don't feel uh, afraid of change and other people who, who you know, hide from it. And that's somewhat the case. There are people who are more willing to embrace difficulty. But one thing I found that was really unexpected is that innovators who break the rules are not just kind of these crazy ones who are unafraid to face you know, convention and, and stare it down, who are unafraid to take risks. They actually feel the same fear and anxiety that the rest of us do when trying to, to break the mold. Mm. But what they do, and this is something that's been both studied in a laboratory and also I heard many, many times from, from these innovators, uh, which is effective in the face of anxiety, is they reframe that anxiety. So when they feel afraid, they don't say, this, this is a good sign I need to run away, this is a good sign I need to stop. They tell themselves, fear is a sign that I'm on my creative edge. And if I move towards those things that make me afraid, I'm more likely to succeed. doesn't mean we should always do the crazy thing. But if we're in a habit of always moving away from that edge whenever we start to feel that fear, um, that's when we know we're in that sort of safe thinking cycle, which really can bring us down. If we're trying to get somewhere new in our careers, trying to build our business to the next level, trying to be better parents, you know, we, we need to be able to be adaptable. And that means stepping out of that comfort zone and moving towards anxiety from time to time. Um, although, again, we can't do that habitually with everything that we do. It's, it's exhausting. But sometimes we've got to find space for it. Boy, that's, that's fascinating. It really is, too. Uh, you use your feelings then and reframe them to be less about the fear and more about, oh, that's just telling you, you know, you're on the edge of some something big. You're on the edge of some breakthrough. What, um, what, what are some things, you also mentioned the words bold and nimble. And so how does, how does having kind of more uh, unsafe thinking help us be bold and nimble? So when we think about the word nimble, you know, let's start there. That's, that's having that kind of learning mindset where we're going to be constantly observing the world and constantly trying to make adjustments to it and not seeing every new piece of information that goes against how we thought it worked as a threat to our well-being and to our ego. I studied experts quite a bit for this book and found that people who consider themselves experts, and especially those who wind up on TV or on radio shows like I am right now, tend to attach their ego to a structure of what they know. And then they'll take in any new information as a threat to, that, to their ego, and they'll make terrible mistakes. Somebody uh, I spoke to studied uh, 200 experts over 20 years, 
and got about 20,000 predictions from them and found that they were worse than dart-throwing monkeys at predicting the future because they were so caught up in this way of thinking and this thing that they identified with of, of a worldview. Yeah. And that makes us blind. So being nimble in many ways is trying to always, you know, always learn, always getting new information, but never identifying uh, our egos or identity as an expert in anything. Um, the, the identity that seems to work really well is to consider yourself a passionate explorer, and that seems to help us grow without getting fixed in a single mindset. In terms of being bold, um, you know, there's, there's just a great opportunity to question conventional wisdom. I spoke to some innovators who figured out that the best way to help the poorest people in the world is not to follow that old, uh, you know, teach a man to fish adage and tell them how to spend their money, but they started giving away $1,000 at a time to the poorest people in Kenya um, because they felt that perhaps the poorest people actually knew how to use the, mo the money best. Mm. So far they've raised more than $30 million um, and have been rated one of the top-rated charities in the world because they kind of look at something that was conventional thinking and um, used evidence to show why that was actually kind of cultural bias dressed up. I talked to... Um, a woman who helped CVS decide to stop selling tobacco. And, you know, that was an unquestioned kind of $2 billion business within her company. And she found a way to make an argument and find a path where they can make more money by not selling it. And that really just required stepping back from this sort of groupthink of the company and saying, you know, is there a new path forward? So in the book, I really look at lots of opportunities to question what no one else is questioning and then to find pathways forward through that. And, you know, like I said, that's kind of the counterintuitive thinking that can be so powerful. And it sounds like, too, you can do all of this without being um, a jerk, right? You you can do this without – this is it, – it just is a huge, it seems like, leadership tool to me to be able to, to be bold like that and to be nimble, to question, to not have your identity and your ego tied up in it and be this constant learner. I, it doesn't have to be an either-or, does it? No, not at all. You know, I, I looked at a lot of science that I found disturbing at first that said – you know, there's a good amount of correlation between people who are creative and people who are sociopaths. And I was <laughs> thinking, oh, God, this is not good this for me. Uh, it's great, not yeah. good for me. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to move in that direction. But, um, you know, it is true that, um, you know, sociopathic behavior is kind of rule-breaking behavior and can find new paths. But that often just leads to sort of self-destruction and you know, too much risk and too much alienation. Um, what does seem to work is, is what I call making people feel safe enough to get unsafe. And that means that in organizations where um, people are clearly valued as human beings, where everybody is being asked to speak up and information that's often hidden is being exposed because everyone has that turn to speak, where leaders are more humble and allow people um, latitude to play, where they reward um, good process rather than just results. So these sort of non-competitive environments where people feel very, very comfortable and safe together allows them to then get out into that arena and fight it out and fight over ideas and really take, take risks while trusting that they're cared for within their organizations. And um, you know, I spoke to the coach of the Golden State Warriors, Steve Kerr, who did exactly that. That's sort of the secret to his success. He realized these guys are under enormous pressure and he depressurized the locker room so that they could be more creative out on the court. So I think that you know, really thoughtful, humble, um, morally driven leaders uh, are really what we need in order to get our organizations to be more unsafe, which itself, I guess, is a little bit counterintuitive. That is – it's interesting um, to, to make a locker room more fun, less pressure. And, I mean, the cool thing about uh, the Warriors, for example, is 
you know, Steve Kerr was actually out for half a year, was it last year, um, because of his back, and yet the Warriors led themselves to a championship by self-leading. Yeah. Um, and, and that's probably just because of the depressurized culture. Yeah, I, I love that part of the story. Just, just can you imagine yourself as a leader that the team does? You're such a good leader that the team doesn't need you. They don't anymore. need you. Um, that's you know that's a really rare um, you know that's, that's, that would be that would be threatening I think to a lot of leaders just to think of it that way. But um, you know that's the kind of organization Steve Kerr created by bringing you know it's, it's called psychological safety and it's yeah. really a powerful tool for leadership. Well, and um, is that is that a learned thing, Jonah? I mean, is this book a way to teach us to do this? I mean, a lot of us, you know, a lot of times we're throwing out the idea that that's some people are just naturally good at creating that safety. But you were able to give us a big list, uh, and I'm sure you've got more of things leaders can do to actually depress or to to create this psychological safety. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be much of a book if the uh, findings were just sort of some people are born with it. Some yeah, people you got aren't. it or you don't. <laughs> it wouldn't be so good. Uh, but no, there's been a lot of interesting research that shows that while intelligence, for instance, is probably an inborn trait that's hard to do much about, creativity is something that is heavily influenced by uh, life experience, by mindset, and by the environment we're in, the people that we surround ourselves with. So there is tons that we can do, um, and we can learn it. And you know, Steve Kerr is another one of those people um, who feels an enormous amount of anxiety. Um, he got to where he was with these ideas about how to run the team because he himself felt too afraid to take, take three-point shots in the NBA because he felt he didn't belong there, even though he was probably the best three-point shooter in the NBA at the time. So it was that sense of empathy in a way that, you know, if you can recognize your own desire for safe thinking, it makes you a more empathetic leader because you realize how, how other people are, you know, seeking safety in, in a world that feels a little bit out of control. Um, but then that also helps you lead them past that, that resistance. That's powerful. Um, talk about a little bit more about um, how you've seen this work in organizations. Uh, you gave us a great example of Steve Kerr. What are some other examples of, of leaders that have gone in and maybe upset an entire industry by their unsafe thinking? Yeah, well, you know, I mentioned, I mentioned Helena Folks at CVS who was, had an incredibly powerful story of really disrupting, distru- disrupting that industry. Um, you know, I tell, I tell the story of the um, mayor of Bogota, Colombia in the 1990s who went in and had a sense in the city that was the murder capital of the world where citizens would regularly ignore the police because they were so corrupt, uh, where sort of everything had gone off the rails, and he was a philosopher and mathematician and realized you know, that people just aren't going to be motivated by, by a government that they don't trust with just kind of the carrot and stick mentality of you know, heavy punishment for crime and um, small improvements in the city to try to, make, to kind of reward them for good behavior. So he did all of these really wild things, like he replaced all the traffic cops on the streets with mimes because nobody would follow the traffic cops. They didn't trust them. But when the mimes sort of mocked them and made fun of them for breaking the rules, they did feel that they wanted to behave better for their, for their fellow citizens. And that sort of sense of laughter and a little bit of shame for breaking the rules brought, brought uh, traffic accidents down by 70%. Um, he recognized that you, know, you can't just punish um, criminals into, uh, into compliance. And so he created a whole campaign where he realized that 
um, you know, murders were happening because there was so much violence in the families in, in Bogota at the time. And so he ran a national campaign to get families to punch and beat up balloons instead of hit each other. And he did it on TV himself. And, you know, through those kind of campaigns, murder rates came down in the city by 60 percent. He was just really in tuned not to what we tra- not to assuming traditionally what we think of as the levers we need to pull, but really questioning and finding new, new ways. Uh, his, his name was Mokis and was just a really great politician, one of the one of the most popular in Bogota's history for questioning the conventional and finding new pathways forward. So, you know, industries can be shaken up in, in so many different ways. Um, you know, Gmail was invented, for instance, as an act of corporate rule breaking, um, defying, defying a boss and saying, I'm going to build something that no one wants me to build. Uh, there's just story after story of how stepping off of the traditional path leads to, you know, the most unusual and interesting stories that everyone wants to tell, because when we get into the unsafe, that's where kind of that creative gold really is. Yeah. We're speaking with Jonah Sachs, who is the author of the book Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most. Jonah is an author and a speaker, a marketing innovator whose pioneering approaches to digital media were critical in uh, bringing some of uh, some powerful uh, social change, such as equity, empowerment, responsibility. Jonah, a question, too, is um, what do you do if you find yourself in an organization that really, you know, the systems are so embedded, the structure is so fixed that they're not really open to unsafe thinking? Is there a way, I mean, do you have to leave these organizations or can you stay in the organization and keep trying to push from inside? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of difficulty with some organizations that resist change and people banging their heads against the wall for years and years and not being able to find a way to express their, you know, their creative potential. There's sort of no way to avoid the fact that when we get together in groups, our ability to act uh, unsafely can become somewhat diminished. But at the same time, innovation really requires other people, and we really can't make significant change in the world completely on our own. So what I recommend for people who are in organizations that really resist change is not to, you know, go in, you know, read a book like this and start waving it around and say, hey, guys, it's time that we take a lot more risks. It's time that we, you know, get out on the edge, because that's just going to be greeted as, you know, creating fear in leadership. Um, what seems to work is, is focusing instead on small changes to process that actually open up people's um, thinking. And that doesn't have to come from leadership. That can come from anybody on the team. So I talk about techniques in the book like red teaming, where you know, if a group is, if, and a team is too focused on being nice to each other and not good at getting confrontational, you can play fun games where you know, everyone can act nice in the brainstorming phase when you're thinking of new solutions, but then you go into a role play where the idea is to beat up and destroy the other team's ideas. And in doing that, um, you know, the team finds out their flaws and they mm. make them better and you break that kind of you know, rush to consensus that can be so problematic. So that's you know, a small thing. Um, Telling stories openly about people who break the rules and who succeed um, has been studied by people who, who look at organizational dissent and find that when people hear those stories, it actually doesn't um, create a sense of chaos or um, lower their social status in a group. But telling those stories actually make them seem more trustworthy when you break rules in the open and, and celebrate those stories. Um, so, you know, those are a couple of things. If you're kind of a mid-level leader, you can, um, and you're in an organization where kind of expertise and self-aggrandizement is driving quite a bit of, you know, fixed and rigid thinking, um, you can do some interesting psychological tricks on yourself and others by humbling yourself 
uh, in comical ways, for instance, to get down off that podium. I tell the story of a the Indian leader of a 56,000-person company. And in, in India, you know, CEOs are kind of emperors in, in some ways. Uh, they're really expected to know and be up on a podium. And he said, you know, by doing a silly Bollywood dance as his first act um, as the CEO and kind of making a fool of himself, he was able to step down off that, off that high podium and tell himself that he didn't have to pretend to know more than he did. And when leaders do stuff like that, it signals to the organization that it's okay to be to let go, have a little bit of fun, and not have the stakes be so high. So, yeah, I'd say if you're in a very strict and rigid organization that doesn't want to embrace change, it might be time to look for something else. But there are lots of kind of um, rebellious acts you can do from within that won't get you labeled as a troublemaker. Yeah, boy, and we need it. Uh, Jonah Sachs, thank you so much for your time, your insight. The name of the book, Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most. We all need to push a little bit more, don't we? And you can do it in a kinder, gentler way. You don't have to beat somebody up to to think differently. You just you can still be respectful and think different. Powerful. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, folks. You know, uh, our goal, again, is raising independent children, and there's no easy way to just make that happen. It's, it's, not, it's not the waving of a wand. You can't just, they can't just declare their independence. Independence has to be earned, and you see it when the kids have confidence and the tools they need. This is especially important as, you know, we're about to launch a bunch of new kids from high school graduation, from college graduation, uh, out into the world. Are, are your children independent? Do they have the, in- the ability to, uh, to basically um, be spiritually independent? Are they able to connect to their deeper purpose? Are they emotionally independent, meaning can they keep their cool and help others to keep theirs? Do they understand their emotional strengths and their weaknesses? Are they financially uh, solid and independent? Do they have the ability to pay their own bills, to make their own way? Do they have the ability to understand credit and debt? It's a big problem with our kids today. They get to college. They they walk through an airport, and someone says, hey, I'll give you a T-shirt if you sign up for a credit card. And you're like, is it that easy? And the next thing you know, you're wearing your T-shirt to uh, bankruptcy court. Um, so those are some ways that we've talked about before on the show about creating some more independent children. Also, a couple of other ways that we want to make sure our children are independent from us as parents are intellectually independent. Can they solve their problems and can they think for themselves? Do they actually know how to figure something out? And we've got to be so careful because it's very easy for us as parents who have lived forever to just go get the car washed or to go figure out what we have to do to get our car licensed. But the, the dilemma is that information is out there, and if you tell your child how to do it, then the next time they don't actually know how to figure out how to do it. We've got to teach our kids that they've got to be curious. They've got to use the value of um, the Internet and the, and, the, and the web, but they also have to use 
the right sources. They need to know what sources to question on the Internet. They need to know what are the best um, sources that actually are, are legitimate, that we can trust. They need to just know simple ways to search, healthy ways to search. We have so many opportunities with our kids today to have more information, to be more intellectually strong, and yet um, are they getting there, or as parents, are we always intervening? We've got to help them try to evaluate their own thinking, um, understand when their arguments may not be strong, how to make a strong argument, how to be open and, and, and literally willing to adjust and um, fix our way of thinking, as our uh, last guest was talking about. So intellectually independent. Can they solve their own problems? Can they think for themselves? Um, also, I'd, I'd make sure that they also are able to hear information from other perspectives without, uh, you know, being terrified by the fact that there are other opinions, that there are other perspectives. Um, also overlook the, the human nature, the, tending, the tendency that we all have to just not keep learning. You know, learning's hard. So let's just go the easy way, the lazy way, right? And just let's just accept what everyone else is saying is true. Parents, we can help them talk more about their lives. We probably ought to be asking our kids a lot more about their opinions before we share our own and show them and literally walk them through how to make decisions and how to get to the better answers. Another way we need to make sure our kids are independent is socially. Do they know how to care for others? Do they connect deeply with others? Are they socially independent kids? Do they have a voice? Do they know how to share their voice? Do, they, do you notice that they don't share their opinions very easily? Have they, uh, have they been able to lift the anchors that may have kept their ship nice and safe in the harbor, but have they been able to lift those anchors so that that ship can get out and start to sail with other ships? In our relationships, we've got to be able to work with people. And a lot of us, if we've had you know a traumatic childhood or if our parents you know had problems or something happened in our life, we may have learned that it's easier to not attach to others. So make sure that our kids don't have these attachment issues, that they can truly uh, connect to others, that they are willing to be vulnerable. Do they know how to manage a conflict? Do they know how to actually have a real communication, a real conversation? Are they introverted or extroverted? These are all things that we should be able to help our kids to better understand who they are as they have to walk this crazy thing we call life. It's not easy, but uh, independence has got to be there. And the reason it's got to be there is because you can't get to an interdependent relationship if you don't have two solid independents. And if we have somebody that's too dependent, we will never get to an interdependent state. An interdependent state is where I, you know what, I don't have to be with you, but I want to be with you. I choose to be with you because being with you, it makes my life better. A dependent state means I have to be with you because you're the one paying the bills, so I have to do what you're saying. What are we doing to make our kids more independent? How do we turn their lives over to them, put them in their own driver's seat, and let them lead, let them live? That's what we've got to figure out as parents. And it's not easy, but it's doable. And we'll, we'll help you. We'll be your guide on the side. That's why we do the show. We'll continue the journey, take a little break up next. We'll uh, talk a little bit more about how raising can-do kids, how to do that, and how to, uh, how to do it in this world that seems so counter that. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
You know, uh, as we try to do with our kids, you know, we want them to be can-do. We want them to be self-motivated, self-driven. And uh, yet it's we live in a world where that might be harder and harder. And a few uh, months ago, we interviewed Richard Rendy, who uh, is the author of the book Raising Can-Do Kids, Giving Children the Tools to Thrive in a Fast-Changing World. And uh, Richard, um, when we started the interview, I, I asked, why is optimism so important in a child's development? Well, look, let's face it. I mean, we've always, everyone's always had lives where there's going to be a lot of, of bumps in the road and problems to solve and things that aren't going their way. Um, you know, if we look again at some of the things that parents worry about, that the future is going to be uncertain, that, that, you know, there's a lot of scariness about the unknown. I mean, that's screaming for optimism because we're talking, you know, optimism as a, in research has a tremendous platform that goes back for decades. It's often misunderstood. We're talking about a very realistic optimism that actually acknowledges exactly what's going on, exactly what the issues are, exactly what the problems are, but orients you to thinking about what is that next thing I can do, not to necessarily get rid of the problem, but what's the next step I can take to try to chip away at it. Hmm. And that's the kind of thing that, over time, and, you know, we talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who, um, you know, go through years and years of, uh, you know, lack of success and things falling apart. And and it's not a, it's not that kind of blind faith or that wishful thinking, you know, that, that, yeah. that stinks to you. It's not like, oh, this will work out. I'll just keep doing this. They keep, like, looking at what am I learning from my experiences and what do I, what can I do a little differently? This hasn't worked. This hasn't worked. And, but you need that emotional drive. That's part of the optimism. It's both cognitive, right? It's a belief system yeah. that I can change things. But it's also a little bit of, you know, you can't get that, that negative thinking leads to negative emotions. And that's the thing that makes you stop. And yeah, it bogs you down. It bogs you down. And it also prevents you from seeing these little slivers of opportunity that, you know, all of that, that pounding and, and all that might, in essence, be taking you to where you want to go. Mm. But you have to have that viewpoint of, I'm going to look look for it. Um, I'm going to use an analogy, which is um, not a great analogy, but I try to come up with one yeah. to try to make a point. Let's say, you know, something's important to you. You're trying to get into a parking lot, right? And, you know, you, you're, show, you're pulling up towards it and... It's, it looks full, right? It looks jammed. Yeah. And you could, on the one hand, say, you know, ah, forget it. You know, this thing I was going to was really, really critical for me tonight. But look, it's jammed up. You start getting mad. You get frustrated. You start looking around. And what happens in your brain, all of a sudden, you say, I'm not going to get to the spot. Forget it. Yeah, right. As opposed to saying, well, let's see. Maybe I'll circle the lot. And maybe when you're in that funky mood, someone's walking out and someone who, who's optimistic by nature is thinking, okay, what are my options here? First of all, maybe someone's going to leave. And, you know, they're going to have their radar screen on and they're going to say, whoa, there's a person walking out, window down. Hey, you leaving? Cool. I'll, you know, you go to that spot. You might think about where else can I park? Can I park somewhere else? Can I walk two blocks to what do I need to do? Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a real-life moment. But you could see just from, from even that kind of 
you know, it's a real life example. Um, but those are the things that actually come into play. You know, things in life aren't always hugely dramatic. It's these little kinds of bumps. And, and these are the things that, you know, I use that example because think about it now if your kid's in the car. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. If my kid's in the car and I'm modeling and, and even talking mom- out what I'm doing. Yeah. Oh, crap. Everyone else got here before me. Yeah. I'm done. It's over. Yeah. I've lost out on my opportunity. I'm going to go home and sell. The gods or, are against me. Right. I never get my parking place exactly. right. Exactly. How come they got their spot? Right. <laughs> and then it's also, true. you know, so, or as opposed to this kind of problem. So, hey, let's everybody, eyes open, see if someone's leaving. I mean, um, let's think about where else do we park? Um, well, and ask your kids and, and, like, sit there and say, okay, what would you guys do? What should we do? Yeah. What are some ways we could fix this together? I mean, any – and really, it's anywhere. It's how can we get our shopping done and the Absolutely. the house cleaned by noon so that we can go do something fun and brainstorm it? Absolutely. And I'm, I, mean, I, would, I would guarantee you that any very successful person across any domain will tell you that they have those moments, you know, throughout their career – where those little moments, those little kinds of things are kind of the stuff of the big success. Yeah. That it's not just that, you know, it's a huge opportunity and make or break. It's these little day-to-day things that keep the, the people going. And and for, for kids to learn that, you know, they'll, they'll translate that. They're going to translate that into, I mean, let's take it a step further. Let's say you go through all those steps, your kid's brainstorming with you in the car, you don't get a parking spot. So do you just go home and say, well, we tried. <laughs> or Day say, over. All right, look, let's, let's learn from this. Next time, let's leave early. Yeah. Yeah. You know, let, next time, hey, all right, lesson learned. Guess what, guys? This was really important. Yeah. And this is the key of the optimism, right? It's not whistling in the dark. Right. It's like saying, okay, you know what? We got a little burned here by this. <laughs> next time, let's get here a half hour early. Let's figure out something to do to kill time to make sure we're here early next time. And that's the problem solving. It seems thing. like that's the – it's it's almost like – and what I know it is one of your principles too is thinking out of the box. But it's like as parents, we need to parent out of the box. We need to kind of parent for the future, not yes. parent the way we were parented. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is going to be the kid's future. Think about this with all the – you know, trying to figure out what kind of work they're going to do navigating a workspace, navigating how, you know, things change. You show up one day, someone else owns a company you're working for. What are you going to do? Yeah. You know, you're going to, your job might change. Maybe it's an opportunity. Maybe you need to get out of there. Um, these, and that stuff happens quick, right? right. That stuff can happen fast. You have to be flexible. And so I want to point out something that you said, Matt, that I think is really important. You know, in our book, you know, when you're laying these things out and you, you want people to focus on different themes, and we mentioned this at the end of the book, it, it's sort of arbitrarily you have to lay them out one by one. But the fact of the matter is all this stuff pulls in together, right? Mm-hmm, right. So you said, right, it's optimism, plus it's thinking out of the box, right, which is the innovation yeah. uh, and the hard work. is something we talk about in industrious, just to, you know, to know the, the, the value. of it, it all comes together in real moments. Not like one minute I need to pull on optimism. They, these things all feed each other, and this is why they're so powerful when you put them all together. That it leads to a successful adult. Well, I, mean, I would guarantee. I love I would it. To you, someone you talk to somebody out in the world. I don't care if it's a music business, and that's one of the things we talk to people in all kinds of businesses. It's not 
you know, if you will, just someone who's with a startup yeah. company type entrepreneur or an inventor. But, you know, put all this stuff together, even with that silly example. I'll tell you, you know, you're, you're going for a position. You're going for an internship. You're going for this, you're going for that. What are they looking for? Mm. They're looking for the kid who's there 15 minutes, 20 minutes early because you know what that's telling them? They put all this together in their mind. That was Dr. Richard Rand, uh, who's doing what he can to help us raise healthier, happier families. We'll continue the journey. This is The Matt Townsend Show.